One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Caruso. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll be talking about the kidnapping of Adolf Coors. And I'll be talking about a disappearance. Why you got two little pink Christians on here? What do you got going on over there? Oh, probably I have this open on my computer downstairs, <laughs> and I also have it open right here in front of you. Did that really seem important to mention at the top of the show? <laughs> this is the type of quality content people are tuning in for week after week. And also, we already recorded one episode this week, so there are limited things for us to discuss. <laughs> we have... Nothing to say to one another. Not a goddamn thing. <laughs> the only thing I can tell you is I also have this document up on my other computer. Okay, great. That's right. I got two computers because I'm really rich. Mm. Mm. <laughs> do you think my... I think my... What? People are going to hear this. Well, yeah, if you do that. Well, I'm not going to do that, but sometimes I, you know, I got to move and groove in my seat sometimes. Everyone, she's wearing overalls and she looks adorable. Thank you. I do actually feel adorable in them. So yeah, thank you. But you're like looking for a reason to be a little insecure. I am, of course. And so like you're inventing like, what if I jingle my overall <laughs> straps? Then it'll make noise on the podcast. And like, yeah, if you jingle them, but maybe just don't jingle them. <laughs> Hey, I'll jingle if I want to all the live long day. <laughs> jingle, jangle, that's how this booty is dangled. <laughs> Am I right? What is is that? A, I made that up myself. Oh, okay, great. No, you didn't. I did it's not. from a song. What's it from? I Is it Missy Elliott? I don't know. I, who knows? Again, it's going to be a great episode because we've done this <laughs> twice in two days. <laughs> Which means... That there's a new a episode. bonus episode out on our Patreon. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking what? maybe we should like streamline the Patreon ads so we're not going through all the tiers necessarily. Oh, it's just yeah, like, what do we want to do? Yeah. Hey, support us on Patreon. Oh, I like that. We've got bonus content. Tons of it. You want to know what else we've got? And check it out mm-hmm. at patreon.com slash LGTC podcast. Are there nudes of Brandy on there? I don't know yet. For sure not. There might be. <laughs> you gotta go look. You actually have to sign up, and then that's how you find out. <laughs> the welcome video is just me naked. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't acknowledge that you're naked. You're just no. like, thank you so much for your support. No, it's a real emperor's new clothes situation. Mm-hmm. I think I have just like the most flattering gown on. Mm-hmm. And I'm just fully new. <laughs> In reality, it's just a skin gown. <laughs> Ew. God, Ed Why King. would you say skin gown? I, I don't know. It's been a weird time, okay? <laughs> anyway. Plus, I just researched a guy named Adolf. I know. Yeah, you ready? I am. Tell us all about him. And like, when was he born? Uh, hang because on. Because I'm concerned that his parents named him Adolf. He was born in 1947. Okay. Why? Is that weird? <laughs> <laughs> and is he like the heir to the Coors? Like, is he a Coors the of the beer hey, Coors? I have got a really fun idea. I should just keep my fucking pants on yeah, and listen to the keep story. Keep their overalls on. <laughs> And just wait for the story, which will commence in less than a minute. Okay, great. What, are we going to sit here for the next minute? <laughs> no, we're going to jingle your overalls. Oh, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I just jingled so hard and nothing happened. It was amazing. 
Jiggle jiggled, but somehow the overalls <laughs> did not move. Stayed put. Well, I guess you don't have to worry about your overalls making noise. Guess not. Okay. Shoutouts to The Case of Adolf Coors by Mara Bovson for the New York Daily News. We like Mara Bovson. Like, more like love. We want to marry Mara Bovson. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and you were like, I love tacos? And people were like, oh my God, you love love them so much. Why don't you marry them? Yeah, you would say that to me. Oh, he did. To which I would say something <laughs> awesome, like, fine, maybe I will. <laughs> I wish I could marry a fucking taco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. But then you eat your love. Okay, anyway. Okay, anyway. Um, also, uh, gosh, some people, boy, they just give the whole story away in the headlines. Yeah. So, Cheryl Eddy, I'm looking at you for Gizmodo. Great job. Also, Seth Ferranti for Vice. And I did a whole bunch of research on newspapers.com. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Old timey articles. And the Denver Post. Is that how your computer does? <laughs> yes. Also, I watched an episode of Forensic Files Ooh. called Bitter Brew. Oh, so it is, it is the Coors Beer folks. No, it's just a guy who had some coffee that was poisoned. <laughs> Old-timey disclaimer. Let's all raise a glass to Adolf Coors III. Side note, this story takes place in 1960, and Adolf preferred to go by ad. Can't imagine why. (laughs) (laughs) So let's raise a glass to ad Coors III. Do you think Dolph Dolph Lundgren was a similar situation? Like his name was Adolf and he went by Dolph because it didn't want to be correlated with Hitler? I'm sorry. Who's Dolph Lundgren? He's a <laughs> – What? Wait, isn't he – wasn't he in Rocky? Like Rocky Five? Oh, God. As if I know anything about any of those movies. I know Sylvester Stallone was in them. He's, uh, in fact um... – I know he sweated all over that Philadelphia art museum. He was in Rocky (laughs) Four. So what was your question exactly? Anyway, uh, his name is Hans and he goes by Dolph. I think that's a weird choice, Hans. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so not an Adolf in sight? No. Uh Uh-huh. Just a German guy? Yeah. (laughs) Great. Anyway, for the third time, <laughs> let's raise a glass to Ad Coors the third. Mm. That's right. I said Coors, as in Coors, taste the Rockies. Yeah. Do you remember the, those ads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have the beer or the beers. They have the. <laughs> they do have the beers. Very good, Brandy. <laughs> they have the the cans where the mountains turn blue mm-hmm. when it's cold. Is Coors any good? I don't. Yeah, I, I'll drink Coors Light sometimes, occasionally. I'm not a huge beer drinker, but... Yeah, and I drink beer not never. at all. Never, yeah. Because of religious reasons. No. <laughs> because you think it tastes gross. <laughs> My religion demands cocktails only. <laughs> Very strict. Coors was founded in 1873 in Golden, Colorado by Adolf Coors III's grandpapa, Adolf Coors OG. <laughs> And now in 1960, Ad was third. I'm sorry. Ad, I did not rehearse this script. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be great. It's going to be so good. 
you know, I say rehearsals, who needs them? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now in 1960, Adcor's The Third was running the business. Or Adcor's Three. Mm-hmm. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> Ad Coors had made his family quite proud. He'd graduated from Cornell University. Ever heard of it? And he was a super good baseball player. He didn't go pro, but he went like close to pro, semi-pro as they okay. call it. What? Why are you making that face? Jealous? Like, do you play in the minors? Like, I, You think I looked into okay. that aspect at I'm all? just wondering like what almost pro is. Semi-pro. Okay. Is, is that not a thing? Semi-pro? I it is because I – in my – I don't know. Maybe that's just me thinking too much about it. But I think if you've made it even to the minors, you're a professional baseball player. Oh, yeah, for sure. OK. So that just means he was really good in college. Probably. All right. He was also very good at golf. Oh. He was good at a lot of sports. Right. Good at a lot of things. In 1940, he married Mary Grant and they had four children. But did they truly love their children? Perhaps not. What? <laughs> because they named one of them Adolf. Yeah, you probably got to stop that. Right. I mean, okay, this family, they didn't stop. It's Adolf's all the way through. Ooh. Okay? There's an Adolf the fifth. Yeah. No word about a sixth. Mm-hmm. I mean, at what point do you say... We're not going to carry on the name any Adolf further. Hitler took a he lot from this it. world, including yes. our first name. Yes. That would suck, though. I mean, I think it's cool when mm-hmm. generations pass on names. But, I mean, you don't see people rocking that facial hair anymore. The toothbrush mustache. Yeah, I mean. No. <laughs> poor Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. In 1960, when Ad Coors was 44, he was working as the CEO and chairman of the board of the Coors Brewing Company. That was a big deal. Coors didn't become a big national brand until like the 80s, but it had a good reputation and it was definitely growing with Ad at the helm, despite the fact that he was allergic to beer. He was? Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, for all I know, I am too. People really liked Ad. He was kind of quiet and reserved. He was a family man and basically a good guy. He and his family lived on a horse ranch. He didn't really have any enemies. Despite the fact that he was super rich and part of this beer dynasty, he was a pretty normal guy. On February 9th, 1960, Ad went about his morning routine. He worked out. He showered. He had coffee with his wife, Mary, went out to check on his horses and came back inside to kiss Mary and the kids goodbye. By that point, the kids had all gone off to school, so he didn't get a chance to actually kiss them goodbye. Mm -hmm. But, oh well. He grabbed his jacket, got into his green and white International Travelall station wagon, and headed to work. It's kind of a cool car. It sounds cool. Yes. Can I look it up? Well, yeah. That's why okay. I told you all okay, about it. Great. One more. Hit it again. Hit Green it again. and white international travel all station wagon. Travel all. One word. Oh, shit. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Okay. So he's in that and it was almost 8 a.m. The highway that he usually took to work was being repaired. So he took a detour on a gravel road. This meant that he was driving in a fairly isolated area. 
about two miles from his home, from his home, <laughs> which he kept in his home, he reached Turkey Creek Bridge. Based on how far away from his colleague. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's important to have a point of reference. Just spat everywhere. <laughs> Some maps they say you are here. Ads comb is here. <laughs> Currently 15 minutes from comb. Anyway. So he reached Turkey Creek Bridge. <laughs> It was an old, not terribly safe-looking wooden bridge. It also wasn't very wide. It held one car. Right. And so we know that Ad made it to the bridge, but also that he didn't make it into work that day. About three hours after Ad Coors would have pulled up onto that bridge, a milkman drove up. He saw the station wagon idling on the bridge The radio was playing, but no one was in the vehicle. The milkman got closer and saw reddish-brown stains on the ground and on the railing of the bridge. Blood? Yes. He contacted the police and told them what he'd seen, and it didn't take long for them to figure out that the... (laughs) Would you like to know what I wrote here? I would love to. Brandy, it didn't take them long to figure out that the car the station wagon belonged to was Ad Coors. <laughs> Who maybe, you know what, maybe rehearsals should be a thing. <laughs> in no time, they found Ad's hat and glasses in the creek bank. I say in no time. They actually drained the creek and then they found the glasses. I think the... But it's... Everybody knows how fast creeks are to drain. (laughs) Just super quick. No time. They also found another hat, a brown fedora. Mm. Did not belong to Ad. Perhaps it belonged to a kidnapper Mm -hmm. or an Ad-napper. Wow. Very good. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That was so stupid. (laughs) You should feel ashamed right now. Are you feeling ashamed? (laughs) They were certain, given Ad's prominence in the community and his family's money, that he had been kidnapped, or adnapped, (laughs) as they came to call it. The FBI was on this case immediately, just as quickly as that creek was drained. They were just there. The next day, they intercepted a ransom letter at the local post office. It was addressed to Ad's wife, Mary. Here's what it said. (gasps) Mrs. Coors. By the way, colons all over the place. Do you want me to give you the colon count? Say all of them aloud. Mrs. Coors, colon. Your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI, colon. He dies. Cooperate, colon, he lives. Ransom, colon, $200,000 in tens and $300,000 in twenties. There will be no negotiating. Bills, colon, used, slash, non-consecutive, slash, unrecorded, slash, unmarked. 
Warning, colon. We will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions, colon. <laughs> Place money and this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post, Section 69. Nice. <laughs> Sign at... Nice. <laughs> in parentheses, it did. <laughs> Sign at King Ranch, Fort Lupton. Wait at NA9-4455 for instructions after ad appears. I have no idea what that means. I assume that's an old-timey telephone number. I believe so. Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this, colon. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow the instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. Ransom note adjourned. Okay. <clears throat> couple of things. Okay. Way too many colons. Mm-hmm. Second of all, um, the problem here is how long it took for this ransom note to get delivered because the police are already involved at this point. Also, could you please... Well, to be fair, like, he goes missing. They intercepted at the post office the next day. Is that really, like, way too long? Well, yeah, because they thought that... Yeah, I mean, they, they were knew gonna kind call of immediate. police immediately when mm-hmm. they find his car. Yeah. Also, can you please tell us how much that money is adjusted for inflation? I'm that so, sounds like a lot of money. It's over five million dollars yeah! in today's money. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Okay. Investigators noted that the ransom letter was well typed. There were no typos, no grammatical errors. They loved the colons. Just they did. No, I mean. <laughs> They made no mention of the colons. No, I meant they really. Is this really a critique they gave that it was grammatically correct? Because it seems like way too many colons. Well, I think it reveals a lot about the writer if, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Someone who's well-educated. Yeah, is this your first time reviewing a ransom letter? No, not at exactly. all. Exactly. many. Yeah, so get with it, lady. <laughs> also, the typeface was distinctive. It was made by this company called C-Tag, and it was only used in two types of typewriters. And the way to tell the difference between those two different types of uh-huh. typewriters was by looking at the numbers that they typed out. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Got it. So with all this information, they knew that the kidnappers used a Royalite portable typewriter. Yeah, obviously. Duh. The only issue was that, you know, it was a pretty popular typewriter. Right. Kind of the Honda Civic of its day. Yeah. But they noticed that in the ransom letter, all the S's were a little lower than they should be. They slid off the page. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that would likely be an imperfection on that one particular typewriter. Or so they hoped. (laughs) Not like a manufacturing issue in all of... Oh, God, they hope not, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the FBI was obviously already involved, as you pointed out, so there was no undoing that. But Mary did what the kidnappers asked of her. She got 200K in 10s and 300K in 20s, and she placed the ad in the Denver Post. Her father-in-law was totally behind her. He told the media, 
I cannot be emotional about this. The crooks have something that I want to buy. My son. The price is secondary. Yeah, I mean, if if I had at all oh, the capability yeah. to pay the ransom, I'd just pay the fucking ransom. Yeah. So this had to be incredibly tough because Adolf Coors Jr. had himself almost been the victim of a kidnapping scheme 27 years earlier. What? Yes. Can you believe that? No. So I don't know a ton about that. I know that the FBI contacted the Coors family and let them know, hey, we've stopped this plan, but there was a plan to kidnap you. So the Coors family had always been pretty private Mm -hmm. and reserved and kind of kept to themselves and – after that, they were even more so, yeah, and then of course this happened. They were stop it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> weeks passed, and Mary heard nothing from the kidnappers. The only people she heard from were prank callers or douchebags who were trying to somehow get the money. Great. In fact, in the initial weeks after her husband went missing. Mary received more than 50 fake ransom notes. Oh, my gosh. This had to be a horrible time for the Coors family, but the fact that they were such a prominent family meant that the FBI would work extra hard to crack the case. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover personally promised the Coors family that he would urge Martin Luther King Jr. to die by suicide. Excuse me. Um, In fact, J. Edgar Hoover personally promised the Coors family that he would blackmail Martin Luther King Jr. because he was a racist piece of shit. Excuse me. What? Um, (laughs) He obviously did all that. But what's relevant to this story is that J. Edgar Hoover personally promised the Coors family that he would solve the case. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a lot of people uh, talk about J. Edgar Hoover and like the women's underwear. I don't give a shit. Yeah. About what he wore on his little butt. But I do give a shit about him being a huge racist douchebag. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) This became the FBI's biggest manhunt since the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. By the way, your face that entire time was amazing. (laughs) Every now and then I do wish we had video. Did you think I'd had a stroke? I just was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) This could have been a really tough case. After all, no one had seen the kidnapping. But the funny thing was that most of the people who lived in the area had noticed this very eye-catching car driving around the area in previous weeks. It was bright yellow. In fact, this car was so eye-catching and so out of place that some people had tried to memorize the license plate. Really? Mm-hmm. So uh, this minor guy thought that it seemed suspicious. He, I don't know, he thought this dude was going to, like, go into his mine or something. Oh, so we're not talking about an underage gentleman. We're talking about a guy who's working in a mine. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Were you genuinely confused? I was like, wait, a minor? What's a minor guy? (laughs) Miners have to guard their holes. (laughs) Sorry, that was terrible. (laughs) The man remembered that the license plate contained the numbers 62 and the letters AT. The FBI took that information and was like, thank you very much. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep. They, you know, used their database and they traced it back to a yellow 1951 Mercury. 
owned by a guy named Walter Osborne. Mm. As it turned out, Walter Osborne had lived in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Denver for about four years. Would you like his address? Uh, you bet your sweet ass I would. <laughs> 1435 Pearl Street, Denver, Colorado. Apartment 305. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so it's still an apartment building. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. Right. Intrigued? Yes. Should we describe it at all? I mean, it's it's pretty boring. It's it just a, it's a the building. most boring apartment building I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> it's like perfectly rectangular. <laughs> there's like there's like no personality. Nope. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's where Walter lived. He was 31, super quiet. In fact, his neighbors had a nickname for him: Quiet Boy, Mystery Boy. Oh. Shut up! I can't believe how close you were. <laughs> were we his neighbors? <laughs> the writer specifically said that the women in the apartment building had that nickname for him. <laughs> mystery, boy. mystery boy. And he really was a mystery boy because for years he'd been living in Denver and working at Benjamin Moore, the paint store. Mm-hmm. Rhymes. But shortly after Adcors was kidnapped, Walter Osborne vanished. Ooh, where'd he go? I don't know. And neither did anyone else. His landlady said that he'd told her he was going to Boulder to finish his studies, but, you know, that turned out to be a fibby-fib-fib from Mystery Boy. Clearly something was up with Walter Osborne. Investigators talked to his co-workers and they said that Walter was always talking about this big money-making scheme he was cooking up. Was he going to kidnap uh, the heir to a He didn't really beer get that company. detailed about it. <laughs> Demand a large amount of ransom. <laughs> just spitballing just a couple ideas. They found out that Walter had ordered handcuffs and shackles and a gun by mail. He's kinky. What? By uh, see, I'm more surprised that they send you a gun in the mail. You can still order a gun in the mail. In the mail? Yes, ma'am. And like anybody can just open that up. Sure thing. Hmm. Well, that is alarming. It's very alarming. <laughs> Great. Okay. <laughs> I thought this was a weird 1960 thing. No, haven't you? Oh gosh, it's a whole thing. Have you heard of ghost guns? Ghost guns? Ghost guns. It's like a whole thing. It's like people order all the parts to a gun online. They get them shipped to them and they assemble the gun so then there's no record of that gun. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I mean, maybe they've made it more difficult since the 60s, but I doubt it. get a gun through the mail. I mean, judging by our gun violence (laughs) statistics in this country. Yeah. Boy, I hate everything. Okay. Um... (laughs) They also discovered that he owned the typewriter that matched the ransom note. Oh, okay. So, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. I think I said that wrong. Bada bing, bada boom. I kind of lost energy. (laughs) Your batteries ran out on boom. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) 
Then, not too long after the kidnapping, they found Walter's yellow mercury. Where was it? It had been abandoned and set on fire in, in New Jersey. Oh. New Jersey? Made it all the way to New Jersey? Right? I all mean, right. yeah, so. Okay. I mean, he is a mystery boy. He'll so travel all over the place. Trip. Mm-hmm. So, this investigation was going places, but there were still two main problems. Adcors was nowhere to be found, and... Walter Osborne didn't actually exist. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. He's not a real person? That's like a name? That's like an alias? <laughs> <laughs> you only get points for your answer if you say it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> the fingerprint on his driver's license application matched a man named Joseph Corbett Jr. Joseph, as it turned out, was brilliant. A genius. And a convicted murderer. <gasps> Who'd he murder? <laughs> Just slow down. All I'm right. sorry. Is that <laughs> the first question everybody wants answered? No, they were like, but where was he born? Seattle. All oh, right. I'll tell- okay. What did his dad do for a living? He was a newspaper editor. Calm oh, okay. down. Great. Also, in 1950, Joseph had been working on the balcony of their house, and his mom came out on it and fell and died five days later. So, what? He was convicted of her murder? No, 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 no. I, oh! That's just, oh, that's not the murder. That's, that's just, just a sad he, story. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have been more clear. <laughs> no, that's just a really sad story. Yeah. From what I've read, he'd been doing okay until that point, but then his mom's death really messed things up for him. Pushed um, him over the edge. Oh. Hmm. Two on the nose. You're two on the nose. <laughs> Joseph had been a Fulbright scholar at the University of Oregon, or was it the University of Washington? Depends on what article you're reading. He was pre-med. He was, you know, I mean, he he didn't do well socially. Yeah. I mean, everyone can kind of agree on that, but he was very bright. But after his mom died, people said that he started acting strange. He became cold. He had a bad temper. And six months after his mom died, he shot a hitchhiking Air Force sergeant twice in the head. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He said it was self-defense. But he shot the man in the back of the head. Yeah. So he changed his story and said it was a robbery gone wrong. He pled guilty to second-degree murder. And was sentenced to five years to life in prison, which is quite the range. That is quite a large range, yes. At first, he was put in a maximum security prison. But he was such a good prisoner that they transferred him to a minimum security prison. And one day, he just walked away. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which I feel like this is not the first story we've told like this. Specifically, an old-timey California prison. So his story was he got out of his cell. He had a change of clothes stowed away somewhere. He changed clothes, popped a window, and skedaddled. Hmm. Went to Colorado. When they say minimum, they mean minimum. minimum. (laughs) (laughs) So he settled down in Denver. He gave himself a new name. I mean, technically it was actually his brother's first and middle names. But, you know, how creative can we be? 
he told people he was married and he gave his mom's name as his wife, which I think you could have been more creative than that. But all right. Things that should probably be explored there, but we don't have the time. (laughs) (laughs) He worked at the paint store and plotted a kidnapping, apparently. Yeah. It looked like he'd planned this for... Nearly two years. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. The FBI now knew who they were looking for. So at the end of March, they added Joseph Corbett to their 10 most wanted list. Months passed. This was really hard for the Coors family. They'd been, by all accounts, a very tight-knit, happy family. Still no sign of Ad during no. all of this. So we're assuming that he's no longer living. So it would depend on who you ask, but I mean, yeah, that was kind of the initial thought yeah. when they saw blood. Yeah. Was this couldn't have gone well. Was there actually a detour or was that part of the whole No, there was an actual okay. detour. Okay. But he had just staked this out for long enough yeah. and waited. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he did the stakeouts in a bright yellow car. So was in that. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm. With Ad gone, the family threw themselves into work, which a lot of people thought was really cold. I think it can just be a coping mechanism. Absolutely. Ad Coors, the father, never talked about the kidnapping with any of the workers, which, again, people thought was cold. But also, I can totally understand. It's probably too difficult to talk about. I I don't know. It's it's tough because – Obviously, we can't go too crazy in depth in these stories that we tell every week. So who knows? Maybe if I learned more, I would judge them more harshly. But I just – I think this would be a horrible position to be in. Absolutely. And if you want to get through it by working really hard and not talking about your trauma for a while, like – I don't know. I'm not going to judge you for that. Yeah. I'll judge you for everything else. (laughs) Literally everything (laughs) else. (laughs) But this seemed to really bother Mary. Mm -hmm. She felt very alone. She felt very isolated. I think she was probably more of uh, an emotional kind of touchy-feely, let's talk it out type person. And they just – they weren't that way. So she began to drink heavily. And then on September 11th, 1960, a pizza delivery guy was bored and went to do some target practice at the local dump. While he was there, he found a nicely made pair of pants. The label on them read, Expressly for Mr. A. Coors III. In the pants pocket, he found a penknife that had been inscribed A.C. III. So he called the police and they came out and not too far from the pants, they found human remains. Oh my gosh. It was the body of Ad Coors. He'd been shot twice in the back. Hmm. The discovery of Ad's body reignited the case. The FBI put up wanted posters with Joseph's face on them. They put up one and a half million of these posters. Oh, my gosh. I know. Reader's Digest did a big article on the crime. They ran Joseph's picture alongside it. And sure enough, someone in Toronto read the article. They looked at the picture. And they were like, huh, 
That looks like a guy I used to work with. So they called the FBI. But by the time the FBI and their Canadian buddies got to Joseph's new place in Toronto, he was gone. They searched the apartment he'd rented. They found chains and padlocks. They found a copy of the book Anatomy of a Murder. So we all know true crime fans are (laughs) the real murderers. (laughs) They were sure they'd catch him soon. Joseph's picture was everywhere. Surely someone would spot him and turn him in. Weeks went by. And as it turned out, Joseph may have been a genius. He may have been a Fulbright scholar, but he couldn't resist driving an eye-catching car. When he fled Toronto, he rented a fire engine red Pontiac. Why? Right? Lay off the high ones. (laughs) The one film Kristen's ever seen. No, you want to know something for real? Yeah. Norman and I have started watching old-timey films lately. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. You know why? The writing is really good. I mean, granted, we're going for, like, the A-list stuff, not, like, the crap. The writing's really good. Also, they don't drag that shit out. No, yeah. 90 minutes. Yeah, that's what Alfred Hitchcock always said. That's the really length for a movie because that's how long an audience member can hold their bladder. Thank you. Al- well, he's such a – oh, he's gross. He's terrible. But, yeah, yeah I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, God, I hate to give him a compliment, but, you know, yes. Yeah. All right. Anyway, on October 29th, a woman in Vancouver recognized him. He was staying at her flop house. Oh. Yeah. So in the FBI write-up on this, they called it a flop house, which I think is rude. Yeah. It was the Maxine Hotel, which I think looks kind of cute. It shut down a long time ago, probably because it was kind of crappy. But... Well, because it was a flop house. <laughs> <laughs> so she called the FBI, or more likely the Royal Canadian Mountain Poli- Mounted Police. <laughs> Sorry. Or the Mountain Police. <laughs> They just look at those mountains and they're like, hey, knock it off. Hey, please. Hey. (laughs) They arrived at the hotel and the woman pointed them to the room where he was staying. They knocked on the door. Joseph cracked it open just a crack. And they're like, get it in. Burst through it. And Joseph said, okay, I give up. You got me. But. He didn't really give up. He couldn't let you down. Rickrolling me? (laughs) 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 He's never going to give you up, Brandy. (laughs) No, he really didn't give up because when all was said and done, he pled not guilty. Okay. At this point, it was clear he was headed for a trial. So authorities in California, where Joseph had murdered the hitchhiker, were like, hey, if his upcoming a trial ends in an acquittal, please send him right back to us. We won't let him get away this time. Yeah. Pinky promise. Joseph's trial began a little over a year after Adcors was killed. 
Interestingly, since his remains were found in Colorado, they didn't try him on federal kidnapping charges. Instead, the local DA went went charged him with first degree murder. They went charged him. They went and charged him. That's right. They mm-hmm. just went ahead and charged him. There we go. <laughs> Seems like we're missing a word. You just put in whatever <laughs> word you want. Prosecutors believed that Joseph had stalked Ad Coors and plotted this kidnapping for quite some time. And they knew this because so many people had seen his bright yellow car. They theorized that Joseph prepared for the kidnapping by observing Ad's routine and buying the gun and the handcuffs and the typewriter. He also bought a bunch of camping supplies. So they think the plan was to kidnap Ad, kind of take him up into the mountains and get the money and, you know, I'll be done. Yeah, get the money and run. Yeah, so what happened? He never okay. made any attempt to get the money? Yeah, it doesn't appear that yeah. he did make any attempt to do it. I think he knew it had fucked up big yeah. time. So what they think happened was they're on this bridge. Mm-hmm. He was already on the bridge and acted like his car had stalled mm-hmm. out. So Ad probably got out to see if he needed help. Joseph produces the gun. And Ad, I mean, Ad was an athlete and they were both very evenly matched. They're both 6'2". They weigh about the same. Mm-hmm. And Ad was a really fucking tough dude. Yeah. So I – you know, I mean, hey, you put a gun on me, I'm gonna Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm gonna piss my pants and for sure. It, but not add cores. No. And so they struggled and they believe that Ad started to run away back to his car and that's when he got shot twice in the back. And okay. so it was just a botched kidnapping mm-hmm. right from the get go. Yeah. But yeah, I mean he could have tried to get the money. Yeah. But I think he probably knew that the police were already involved mm-hmm. in this point and yeah. there was no chance of him making – Because this became just immediate yeah. huge news. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he realized how quickly Ad would be missed. Mm-hmm. So thanks a lot. I just went way far in my script. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Okay, for their case, the prosecution brought Joseph's former co-workers in to testify about how he was always talking about, you know, this plan to make himself rich. They brought in local witnesses who said they'd seen Joseph in his yellow car hanging around the area in the weeks before the kidnapping. Ad's widow, Mary, talked about the ransom note and how she'd gotten all the money and did her part and waited for the phone to ring, and all she got were prank calls. She told the jury that when they first got that ransom note, she'd been relieved. She thought maybe her husband was still alive. Yeah, of course. So this is interesting. The defense tried to block testimony that dealt with the kidnapping. Their argument was that kidnapping was not part of the criminal charge, so it shouldn't be talked about. But the (laughs) What? You got things to say? Well, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. So the prosecution argued that they needed to talk about kidnapping to establish a motive for the murder because that's why he was yeah. murdered was because Joseph he wanted to pull off this to kidnapping. Kidnap him. Yes. So the judge sided with the prosecution, saying, "I'll allow it, but don't go too far, counselor." Which is not real. It's just <laughs> something I've always wanted to say. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've always wanted to like take off some wire from frame glasses. <laughs> but don't go too far, counselor. <laughs> You're on thin ice, counselor. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> Don't you ever wish your life was filled with these moments? Uh, no. Yeah, me neither. It's weird. Anyway, they called in experts who said that the ransom note came from the typewriter that Joseph purchased. They called in a fingerprint expert showing that Walter was Joseph, Joseph was Walter. They were one and the same. Yeah. But the showstopper was the evidence they recovered from Joseph's burned-out, abandoned mercury. An expert for the prosecution testified that there were distinct layers of dirt on the underside of that car. The fourth layer was sand, perhaps from the coast of New Jersey. Mm. The third layer was nothing special, maybe from the road trip. Yeah. The second deepest layer, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> The, the se- second to last layer yes. <laughs> contained flecks of granite, and that matched the soil where Ad's body was found. Mm-hmm. The deepest layer contained different types of shale, which matched the soil where Ad was kidnapped. Shale, I'm sorry, did you did say I? shell with a southern accent? No. What is that? S-H-A-L-E. What is that? What shale? Don't say a word like that and expect us to fucking know what that is. You know, I looked it up and I was like, that's boring. It's a fine-grained sedimentary rock that forms from the compaction of silt and clay-sized mineral particles and is easily broken into thin parallel layers, all right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Piece of shale. (laughs) Okay. Are you happy? I legitimately didn't know what word you were saying. (laughs) (laughs) there's a thin layer of windings and who's it's and what's it (laughs) what about thingamabobs (laughs) got 20 (laughs) oh who cares no No big big deal deal. I I want want more more. (laughs) (laughs) anyway what do you think of all that shale Are are you impressed yeah okay sure hmm hmm Brandy, brandy, brandy. <laughs> do you think this is bullshit science? Like it's just I kind of yeah. do. Um I think it sounds I don't think impressive. It's, to be clear, I don't think it's bullshit science. Like I absolutely think you know we go to Colorado probably once a year, you know, yeah. and sure there's different there's types shale of all over there, <laughs> We come back covered in shale. <laughs> but I'm thinking like I don't know. The car's been set on fire. Yeah. It's in fucking New Jersey. Yeah. Do you really mean to tell me that they – it's just – it's too perfect is what it is. That they have the exact soil from where he was kidnapped and from where his body was dumped. That's – that's Boom! The, science! No. That's – we are – we have to make a case and we don't have any witnesses and uh-huh. we have only circumstantial evidence. <laughs> yeah. And so we have to – Yeah. I don't know. Make the underbelly of this mercury. Shale, yes, we do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> District Attorney Ronald Hardesty wrapped up the prosecution's case by showing the jury one of the hats that they'd found at the crime scene. Did he put it on – What's his name? Joseph? 
What's this guy's name? Yeah, it's Joseph. Joseph, just playing like if the hat fits, something snappy. <laughs> Brandy, it's so funny that that's where you're going. The hat he presented was a brown fedora. They argued that it belonged to Joseph. And so, <laughs> what? He was like, Jerry, I ask you if there's anybody in this courtroom who would look great in a brown <laughs> fedora. <laughs> and let me tell you, they dropped that fedora on his head. Everyone creamed their jeans. They're like, you know what, Joseph? If that isn't your hat, it should, should be. be. It absolutely should be. <laughs> no. So the DA asked Joseph to stand in front of the jury and a witness placed the they fedora on his head. head. If the fedora fits, you must not acquit, Brandy. <laughs> I can't I can't believe it either. And I want I want so much more context. Yeah. Like surely they had someone on the witness stand who was like, "Yeah, I saw this guy in a fedora and this dramatic moment played out in front of them and I but the newspaper article I read from the time was just like, "Yeah, so they plopped the hat on his head in front of the jury." That can't be the end of that story. <laughs> So the prosecution was finished. Okay. Now it was the defense's turn. And they called no witnesses. None? None. Did they, okay. What'd they say? Nothing. They didn't put a case at all? Here's the thing. They're like, the prosecution has not proven their case. There you go. <laughs> when asked later about the strategy, defense attorney William Erickson said that the state had, quote, Failed utterly to establish a case. Okay. They figured that the case against their client was so weak and circumstantial that they didn't need to present a defense. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Bold, bold, bold. But okay, what do you think of the prosecution's case? It's so circumstantial. Mm-hmm. I think it – I mean a lot of it comes down to do you believe – 100% that that typewriter is the exact typewriter. Right. Do you think he looked good in that hat? <laughs> <laughs> Did he look good in was the hat? Was working it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's – thank you. That was my number two question. My number three, just close in behind, is do you believe the soil stuff? Shale, yes, I do. <sighs> I don't know that I believe the soil stuff. Hmm. It's really hard for me to believe the typewriter thing. Like, I absolutely believe that the typeface can be linked back yeah. to, you know, these two different types. But those two different types are, like, major yeah. brands. Yeah. And I believe that you can narrow it down further some, but I don't think you can say this is the one, you know, what's that typewriter's IP address, I ask you? Yeah, I don't think they have IP exactly. addresses. Exactly. Somebody should work on that. <laughs> <laughs> the jury deliberated for two days. And on March 29th, 1961, they found him guilty. 
several of the jurors cried as the verdict was read. Really? Yeah. Interesting. It's funny. I feel like you don't see that much. Mm-mm. Joseph was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. He was not eligible for the death penalty because under Colorado law at this time, you couldn't get the death penalty unless you confessed to the crime or there were eyewitnesses to the crime. Hmm. Which seems like, yeah. I'm fine with that. I mean, ideally, there wouldn't be a death Death penalty, penalty but I mean, having some rules (laughs) is nice. Joseph appealed his sentence and the appeal went all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. So his legal team argued that the trial court had made just a shit ton of errors. Mm -hmm. But their main argument was that circumstantial evidence is not enough to find someone guilty of first-degree murder. But the Colorado Supreme Court disagreed with their argument Mm -hmm. in a 5-2 decision. So Joseph stayed in prison. And in 1978, Adolf Coors IV tried to visit him in prison. So Adolf Coors had been 14 Uh when his dad was kidnapped and murdered. I guess you can't even call this a kidnapping. I mean, he was just murdered. But Joseph refused to see him. Adolf tried again, and Joseph refused to see him. He tried again. And Joseph refused a third time, which Adolf kind of knew he yeah. would. That final time, Adolf put a note in a Bible and he handed it to the guard and he asked him to take that Bible to Joseph. The note read, I want to forgive you for what you did to my family. And I ask for your forgiveness for the hatred we've had for you all these years. Oh, oh that just gave me goosebumps. I know. Okay, so I <laughs> got goosebumps too. Yeah. I went down and Adolf Coors the Fourth rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. He is now like an evangelical born again Christian guy. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he's a motivational speaker. And initially I had jokes in this script about like, well, yeah, you have to be if your name's Adolf, like you gotta whatever. Anyway. I listened to one of his motivational Christian speeches. I listened on like some weird Focus on the Family uh-huh. podcast, which I mean, that's like the creepy, super conservative, yeah. you know, we hate gay people stuff. Yeah. So it's weird. Now I'm homophobic. I, bet I <laughs> just can't help it. I actually really enjoyed his speech. I mean, it's like it totally reminded me of growing up when we yeah. went to church all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it didn't feel that far fetched. Yeah. Healthy dose of, you know, mm-hmm. gentlemen, be grateful for your women. But, you know, he seems sweet. Uh-huh. Anyway, where am I going with this? So he talked about losing his dad yeah. and how hard that was. And he said that his mom was just consumed by hatred for this man who took her husband away. Yeah. And she drank too much and ended up dying when she was like 60. She fell down the stairs. Oh, my God. Yeah. And his sister died when she was like 28 from cancer. I mean, just like some really horrible stuff has happened to this family. Yeah. <sighs> Holy cow. So not long after Adolf tried to reach out to Joseph, yeah. Joseph was up for parole. And he told the parole board, 
I think the web of circumstantial evidence that was wrapped around me could have been wrapped around virtually anyone. Further years of imprisonment aren't going to make me a better person. I've come as far as I can go. That's kind of refreshingly honest. I mean, yeah. He was granted parole in 1980. Wow. What do you think of that? I mean, he really wasn't locked up for very long no, at all. No, he wasn't. Um, what about California? Don't they still want no nope. piece of him? Evidently not. Okay. All right, then. You just wander out of minimum security prison whenever you fucking feel like it. Well, they certainly frowned upon it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think to me it would all come down to how certain are we that he did this? Yeah. I'm not very certain. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm kind of certain. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he probably did it. Um, I do think he probably did it. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, actually, I think it's very likely. <laughs> now that I'm really thinking, yeah. yeah, I think it's very likely that he did it. Yeah. I just don't think there was a lot of evidence. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he was released in 1980. And... When he got out of prison, he went back to living in Colorado. In fact, he settled down in an apartment about 10 miles from Turkey Creek Bridge. He got a job driving a truck for the Salvation Army. He didn't socialize much at all. He kept his curtains shut at all times. Mystery boy. Damn right. Mystery man now. He rarely spoke to the media, but when he did, it was to maintain his innocence. He said he had no problem admitting to the first murder of the hitchhiker, but he maintained until the end of his life that he never killed Adcors. Hmm. Which, even that, I'm like, well, but you did try to say it was self-defense and you shot him in the back of the head. So, like, calm down. (laughs) Yeah. In 2009, when Joseph was 80 years old, he died by suicide. Really? Yeah. Yeah. One source said that he'd recently been diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So that's the story of the botched kidnapping of Adcors III. Oh, my goodness. That was a wild ride. Yeah. Ugh. I just feel terrible for that family. Oh, Absolutely. I don't know how you recover from something like that. Well, I don't think you do. Right. And I'm I'm thinking specifically about Mary. Mm-hmm. You lose your husband and then you've got these four kids who are also – I mean they could be kidnapped just as easily. Mm-hmm. And you know your husband's father, there was an attempt, attempt made on yeah. him. I mean that would just – yeah, how would, would you deal you. with – yeah, yeah. How would you deal with that? Yeah. You wouldn't. You'd drink and you'd, I mean. I mean, well, hopefully you'd find healthier. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I'm just saying, I think yeah, you like, see why oh, absolutely. life went the way it went. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Hmm. Anyway, when you came over today and I was running late, it was because I was literally listening to the testimony of Adolf Kors IV from the Focus on the Family podcast. 
Oh, yeah. While I was running on the treadmill. Wonderful. So <laughs> weird switch from my normal. Yeah. <laughs> <Stuff>. <laughs> that was very interesting. Yeah, I think he probably did it. I, th- You know, I mean, I feel silly even questioning it because yeah. I think he definitely did it. Like the fact that I do believe he was spotted, like the car went back to him. Absolutely. Yeah. When they went to Denver, he had literally packed up and left mm-hmm. the day after the kidnapping. Yeah. yeah. No, I think for sure he did it. But I'm just not super confident in the evidence they had against yeah. him. Absolutely. But I am confident that I'm going to get up and get myself some water. Do it. Get up and get some water. Okay, what you got for me? I've got a disappearance for you. I do like disappearance I know stories. you do. Did we kind of give each other a little nifty gifties? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. All right. I think you're going to like this case. I watched – well, OK. That's not entirely true. What? OK. Uh, this, <laughs> oh, you read the The majority of this of information a... comes from an episode of 2020 that I read and did not watch uh-huh. and an article on ChillingCrimes.com. My God. You're obsessed. Love ChillingCrimes.com. Robert Bierenbaum's family didn't think much of it when the young doctor showed up alone to his nephew's birthday party at 6.30 on July 7th, 1985. He told his sister that he and his wife, Gail Katz, had gotten into an argument earlier in the day and that she'd left their Manhattan apartment to cool off around 11 o'clock that morning. She said she needed some space and that she was going to sunbathe in Central Park. But when it was time for him to leave for the birthday party at around 5.30 that evening, she wasn't back, so he'd just gone on without her. This wasn't, like, super surprising for the family. The young couple, they were both 29, Mm -hmm. often fought, and their marriage was pretty toxic. They'd started going to counseling to try and improve their marriage, but... Not much had improved. To Can't this polish point. a turd, as they That's say. That's right. Robert celebrated his nephew's birthday, and then later that evening, he left to head back to Manhattan. He, of course, hoped that Gail had returned to the apartment and that they could talk through the morning's events. On the way home from the party, Robert stopped off at his friend's house, Dr. Scott Baranoff. And by that point, it seemed that he was pretty concerned uh, about Gail. He used Scott's phone to call their apartment phone several times, but Gail didn't answer. Robert told Scott that he and Gail had had an argument that morning Mm -hmm. and that, you know, she'd stormed off and went to the park to sunbathe and he hadn't spoken to her since. She specifically said, I'm going to go to the park to sunbathe? Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, according to Robert. All right. So Robert spends a little time at his friend Scott's house calling his apartment repeatedly, and then he decides to head back to his apartment for the night. When he got there, Gail wasn't there, and so he started making some phone calls. I think he called Gail's family. Uh, no one had heard from her, and then he called her former psychology teacher, Dr. Yvette Feis. Feis? F-E-I-S? Yes. 
Hi. <laughs> wow. I can spell it, but you think I can say it? No. I mean, was she close to her former Well, psychology? I don't really know. I guess it was someone she was close with. It seems like an odd choice to I know. Me. That's what I yeah, was thinking. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But he was like, hey, we got an argument this morning, and Gail took off. She went to Central Park to sunbathe, and I haven't... Right. I can't track her down. I don't know where she is. She's not back. And... Yvette was like, well, you should call the police. (laughs) Or at the very least, go talk to your doorman. Right. See if anybody's seen her. And Robert was like, yeah, this is a good idea. I'm going to do that. But he did neither of those things that night. Okay. It wasn't until the following night, July 8th, at around 9 p.m. Why didn't he do that? That's not an answer. (laughs) He just didn't. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good enough for me. Maybe it's because he knew where Gail was the entire time, Kristen. Well, obviously he did, but I mean... (laughs) Yeah, so that night he does nothing. (sighs) Okay. Makes a couple phone calls. A little, uh... Concerned husband theater, if you will. Well, this is an amateur production if you didn't even call the cops. <laughs> and so, yeah, the next night, July 8th, at like 9 p.m., Robert walked into a local police station and reported Gail missing. He talked to Detective Virgilio. Oh, my. <laughs> We're having a rough time this episode. Virgilio. Dalsas. <laughs> Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Detective Virgilio Dalsas just happened to be the officer in charge of the missing person's desk that night. And Robert informed him that Gail had left their apartment at 11 a.m. the previous day. They'd gotten to go into to sunbathing. a fight. She went to go sunbathing in Central Park. See, that's the other thing. Like, when and you're, in, you're in a fight. Yeah. I can see, like, I'm going to the park. Yeah. But... For some reason, like, giving she more detail. She took a blanket and some d- okay. d- oil. Okay. Actually, you know what? Yep, that checks out. Okay. Okay. And Even so- though he's for sure guilty, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you now. Okay. So, and he told the detective that he'd waited at the apartment all day for Gail to come back. Well, but by 5.30, she wasn't back, and so he didn't have a choice. He was expected at his nephew's birthday party in Montclair, New Jersey, and so at 5.30, he left to go to the party. Why does your face look like that? How dare you keep you asking me? Heavy that? dose of skepticism on your <laughs> face, Kristen. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just listening because I'm thinking. You think it's odd that he just sat there all day and waited for her to come back? No. Okay. No, honestly, I'm I'm trying to be mm-hmm. as non-judgmental <laughs> as I can, but I'm thinking, okay, so Norman and I get in a fight. He leaves for a while. Yeah, I would stick around. Yeah. You know, I, there's things to do around here. Yeah. Dogs to pet. That's right. Floors to vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, I wait around and then, you know. Roombas to run. That's right. <laughs> but... Yeah, and then then it's time for the birthday party, and yeah, you leave. Yeah, you go to the party. You're not thinking something terrible has happened. Yeah. 
So obviously, you know, we know Robert's the last person to see Gail. And so they're like, the detective's like, okay, make sure you get, are there any more details about the day that you can give us? Are there any more details about your and Gail's relationship that you might want to share with us that will help us? And Robert's like, I do. I killed her. I should have told you that. I don't know. No, that seems like, mm, seems like I've said everything. Oh, well, you know. There's that one little thing, you know, I'm kind of worried about Gail because, you know, she's not real stable. Oh, boy. Um, she previously uh, has attempted suicide, and I'm just really worried that she may have harmed herself. In fact, she regularly sees a therapist, and her therapist actually just recently told me that she believes Gail may be suicidal. Okay, well, that's really easy to verify. Mm-hmm. So did that actually happen? So, no. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for that. But okay. for now, like, they talked to Gail's family and they completely disputed basically yeah. everything Robert yeah. said. They said, yes, okay, it's not entirely untrue. She had made a previous suicide attempt years earlier. Right. But since then, she'd been super active in therapy and she actually was in school to become a psychologist herself mm-hmm. and they believed she was at a very different place in her right. life right. and they believed almost immediately that Robert was behind Gail's disappearance Gail's sister Elaine Katz said she knew for sure when she found out Gail was missing and that she hadn't come to her or their parents that mm-hmm. something had happened to her. Yeah. She said, she's not with me. She's not with my parents. It was at that moment that I knew my sister was dead. Yeah. Elaine had a lot of concerns about her sister's relationship with Robert. It had started, you know, really magically like a fairy tale. And then mm-hmm. it had quickly turned toxic. When Gail and Robert met in the early 80s, he was like the perfect catch. He was in, you know, medical school. He was about to become a doctor. You know, he was a – I think he was in his residency. So he Uh was like a doctor essentially. Yeah. He spoke multiple languages. He was like a gourmet cook. He loved cooking. Well, damn. he was a pilot. So he'd like take her on these little – dates like a quick little flight somewhere for a fancy dinner like that is wild yes yeah it was like a whirlwind magical romance yeah but there were a lot of red flags elaine said she noticed the first red flag when she went on like a double date Mm -hmm. with bob he went by bob or robert okay and gail to a sushi restaurant which i didn't even know people were eating sushi in the 80s but yeah, a lot uh, of Japanese well, people. Well, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Boy, aren't you an asshole. <laughs> they went to a sushi restaurant and Robert, like, shoved sushi oh. into Gail's mouth and then attempted to do the same to Elaine. And oh. Elaine was like, what the fuck? Like, Wait, when you say shoved, like... I, I don't know. Okay. That's how she described it. It seemed very aggressive, super weird. Yeah. (laughs) That was like her first like, I don't know about this guy. Like that seems like odd behavior. And then. I feel like you would nope right out of there. 
Oh, fuck yeah. Someone's got something, a texture you're not <laughs> sure <Nuh-uh>. about. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, not long into their relationship, like right when they moved in together, I guess, which I think they did fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Gail called Elaine one day crying hysterically because Robert had tried to kill her cat. Oh. It had upset him in some way and he attempted to strangle it. Oh, my God. And attempted to drown it in the toilet. What the? Yeah. So she was like hysterical. Well, yeah. And... Elaine was like, oh God, okay, get the, like, fuck, get out of the there. fuck out of there. You're done. And Elaine said that Gail was like, no, 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 no. I'm just going to get rid of the cat. Everything's going to oh be my fine. God. Um, I, I just, I love him. And mm. so I'm just going to get rid of the cat and everything will be great. And Elaine was like, no, get rid of fucking Bob. You don't get rid of the cat. But. Gail decided to stay in the relationship and then married Robert. I will say like that. So obviously she's trapped in the cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how hard that was for her to yeah. get rid of that cat. Yeah. But she knew mm-hmm. for its safety she yeah. needed to. Elaine, I mean, that had to be terrible. Yeah, Elaine, I read another bit where Elaine kind of described a little bit more of this and she said both – Gail and the cat cried all the way to the shelter to oh. to give it up. That's terrible. Terrible. Because a lot of times in those abusive relationships, like, all you have is your pet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Gail told her sister, she said, I'm smart. I'm loving. My love will cure this. Mm. Everything will work out. The relationship continued and it just became more toxic and Gail's friends and other family members started to notice. Robert was super controlling and a neighbor recalled at one point Gail told him that she didn't always feel comfortable at home. And somebody else watched an interaction where like Gail went to like turn off a light Mm -hmm. and Robert put his hand over Gail's to even control just, like, how she turned the light off. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the controlling nature of this relationship just continued to escalate until one night Gail called Elaine again and told her that Robert had caught her smoking on their balcony. Mm-hmm. And he'd become enraged by it. And he had choked her to the point of unconsciousness. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. She had reported the incident to Mm -hmm. the police, but nothing came of it. Nothing came of it? Nothing came of it. So specifically on this 2020 episode, a detective said, like, if that happened today, he would have been arrested immediately. But in 1983, nothing was done about it. Ugh. Yeah. Like, not even a follow-up. That's disgusting. Yeah. Yep. Gail knew that this was escalating and becoming a very dangerous situation, and she convinced Robert to go see a therapist. So they were, like, in couples counseling together. Mm. 
And that therapist wrote up a letter to Gail and said, you've got to leave this marriage. Wow. If you stay in it, he is going to kill you. Wow. But initially, Gail just kind of brushed it off. But things didn't get better. And eventually, Gail ended up having an affair. She met a man. And she told her sister that she was going to leave Robert for this other man. Yeah. And then on July 7th, 1985, Gail Katz disappeared. So a search obviously began for Gail, but there wasn't much to go on. The police tried to get more details about, you know, what had happened that day, but they could only speak to Robert, essentially. And mm-hmm. he was like, well, I've told you everything. And then he stopped returning their calls. Mm-hmm. It's a shame they never returned Gail's call about being choked. Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, they called him. They, like, left him a bunch of messages. But for, like, three days after he reported her missing, he didn't respond to those calls at all. And then finally he called them and was like, yeah, I've already, I've already told you everything. You already know it all. <laughs> Obviously, by this point, police were growing suspicious of Robert. They yeah. believed he knew more than he was saying. And, like, more kind of information kind of came out from friends. So there was, like, a a big search going on. Gail's family was involved. They were putting posters up of her. They were handing flyers out in Central Park asking if anybody had seen them. And on the 14th of July, so this is, like, she's been missing for a full week at Uh this point. They're doing that. They're in the park. And Robert's there. He's helping hand out the flyers. And Robert makes a joke to one of Gail's friends that's helping hand out these flyers that – Oh, she's probably just on a shopping spree at Bloomingdale's. What? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in yeah, like... Yeah, thanks, dude. We're all actually concerned. Concerned, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then he made like some joke using some term I'd never heard before that I will not repeat, but it's like a okay. pejorative for a spoiled Jewish American girl. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. was like, you know what a bleep she is. Wow. Yeah. While they're actively searching for her. Yeah, he can't hide it. His contempt for her. Yeah. He can't hide it. Like another incident, he was with Gail's mom and he made just like an offhand comment about how he'd had to take the rug out of their apartment to get cleaned because their cat, I guess they got a second cat, had gotten sick on it. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. He brought this up himself. Uh huh. Yeah, he. Yeah. He's so arrogant. Mm-hmm. So people are super suspicious of Robert at this point. And he's not, I mean, he's only enhancing that by like, yeah. he's telling different little bits and pieces to different people. One point he said that they'd actually argued the night before, not that morning. And then mm-hmm. they'd, they'd reconciled and had a really nice dinner. He'd cooked her a candlelight dinner and all this stuff and everything was fine. But then, you know, she went to sunbathe. He also then started telling people that after she didn't come back after some amount of time, he'd actually gone to look for her in Central Park and he'd found mm. her blanket and her her <laughs> no baby oil, no, you but don't get not to found add her. All that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
He also told everybody that he had spoken to the doorman and that the doorman had said, yeah, Gail left at 11 and I never saw her again. So police followed up on this and went and talked to the doorman and said, Mm -hmm. first of all, Robert had never spoken to the doorman and the doorman had never seen Gail leave that day. He'd actually never seen Robert that day either. Did he see Robert leave with a rug? No, he didn't see Robert or Gail go in or out at all that day. Okay. So this will we'll talk about this more later, okay, but okay. maybe there's a back oh. exit to this apartment building. Yeah. As the weeks went by, the police kept asking Robert if they could get access to the apartment, you know, see if there were any clues there. And he kept putting them off, putting them off, putting them off. And finally, in September, they were allowed to do just like a cursory search. They weren't allowed to take anything or do any like testing for blood or anything. I'm sorry. What? How is that fucking allowed? Maybe they were unable to secure an actual search warrant so they could only uh, – <laughs> sorry, oral words fail me. Yeah, he was like, yeah, you can come in, but there's going to be no sample taken, no spraying of any lum- – I don't know if luminol existed in 1983, but, you know. He set rules for what they could do. Well, I bet he did because he was a controlling mm-hmm. douchebag, yeah. but I'm surprised that – that's a thing at, that can happen. At some point, Gail's family, early in the search for her, had like lured Robert out of the apartment, mm-hmm. had him handing out yeah. flyers, and then they snuck into the apartment to see what they could find. And they found Gail's purse with her cigarettes in it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Yeah, she didn't leave to cool off and not take her cigarettes Absolutely. with her. Absolutely. Gail's sister eventually did share with police, and it's a little unclear to me. I'm, I'm guessing she shared it pretty early on, but she mm-hmm. did share with police that Gail had confided in her that she had been having an affair and that she was prepared to leave Robert. And another friend corroborated that and said, in fact, Gail had told her that she was going to tell him she wanted a divorce that on July 7th. Oh. hmm She told that friend that she expected Robert to refuse Uh the divorce, but that she was prepared. She was going to show him that letter that the therapist had written saying, you are in danger. You need to get out of here and to use that against him. She was going to say, I'm going to show this to your colleagues. I'm going to show this to whoever. You're going to give me a divorce. Mm. By this point, police believed that all of these things together, all of this was Mm -hmm. circumstantial evidence enough to show that Robert was responsible for Gail's disappearance. But there was no sign of Gail. There was no sign that she'd been – there was no evidence that a crime had been committed. Well, they didn't go in there. Right. Yeah, he'd had tons of time. Yeah, they'd given him tons mm -hmm. of time. Yeah. So Gail's family is just spending months and months and months searching for her, putting up these flyers. In the meantime, fucking Robert's living it up. Mm-hmm. He's out in the Hamptons with friends. He moves on. He starts dating other women. Oh, my God. Yeah. He moves a woman into the apartment. Oh, gross. Yeah, like 
I don't know how long after. A uh, couple months. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, couple months after Gail disappears, he moves another woman into the apartment. Here, come into where I murdered my wife. Mm-hmm. Months and months have gone by, and there is just no trace of Gail at all, mm-hmm. and no. Arrest was made. Gail's disappearance was still an open and active investigation, and Detective Andy Rosenzweig was assigned to the case. So he was, like, supposed to look at it, like, with fresh eyes Uh and, and look over it. And he said that, of course, it looked like Robert was somehow involved in this. And he took a note of something that was just kind of, like, absentmindedly noted in this investigation was that Robert was a licensed pilot. Mm-hmm. And no one had really looked into this before, and so they decided to look into Robert's flight logs. And it turns out that Robert had rented a plane from a New Jersey airport on July 7th, 1985. Yeah. Flown it for... An hour and 56 minutes. And then he'd altered his flight logs to make it look like that flight took place the next day. And he hadn't told a single person, not the police during this investigation, not his family, not Gail's family, that he had taken this flight. In fact, he'd told the police that he'd been home that whole afternoon waiting for Gail to get back. Mm. So the detective believed that Robert had killed Gail, yeah, loaded her body into that plane, yep, flown it over the Atlantic Ocean, and dumped, and her. dumped her out. Ugh. Yep. His flight time gave exactly the right amount of time to fly, like, round trip out into the ocean, back, and then get to the nephew's party at the oh, time that he arrived so there. Oh, that's so gross. So he presented this information to the DA's office and they're like, it's not enough to secure a conviction. We don't even know that Gail's dead at this point. We have no proof. Mm -hmm. Four years went by and this case just went cold. And then in May of 1989. This is just sloppy police work is all this is. Because like what he did there. Yeah. Looking at those logs, that seems like basic Should have been done immediately. Yeah. So what else, what other obvious things could have been done immediately? Yeah. Like a search of the apartment immediately? Yeah. No shit, right? Months went by before they got in the apartment. And they played by Robert's rules Mm -hmm. the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So – Four years after Gail was reported missing, in May of 1989, a torso washed up in Staten Island. So it's 1989. There's no DNA testing. Mm -hmm. What they did was they took an X-ray of this torso and compared it to an old chest X-ray of Gail's. Oh, wow. And an X-ray technician determined they were a match. This was determined to be Gail's torso. It was then released to her family. They were able to have a burial for her. She was officially ruled dead. But again, no charges were brought. Hmm. By this time, 
Roberts off living in Las Vegas. He'd opened a plastic surgery practice. Oh, God. He was dating this woman named Stephanie Youngblood. She was a doctor of chiropractics. Uh-huh. And she was having a very similar experience to the beginning oh. of Gail and Robert's relationship. It was wonderful. They went to all these like black tie events because he was this big deal doctor mm-hmm. and they would go on ski trips. It was like amazing. It'd be 114 degrees in Las Vegas. So they just jump in his plane and fly to Argentina and do a nice little ski weekend. What? Yeah. In Argentina? Yeah, in the mountains. Oh, okay. I didn't know. (laughs) When I think Argentina, I guess I think hot. (laughs) There's mountains there. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, I don't fly off to Argentina Mm -hmm. very often. Mm -hmm. This woman, Dr. Stephanie Youngblood, she just believed that she had made the perfect catch. Of course. Robert was amazing. He was giving. He joined an organization that it was a bunch of doctors who would go to Mexico and perform surgeries on children born with birth defects. Mm -hmm. He was doing amazing work. Yeah. I mean, you would think you caught a good one. Uh Uh-huh. But as the time went on, Stephanie realized that, like, maybe she didn't know Robert that well. At one point, he admitted that he had been married before, like after they'd been in a relationship for quite some time. He was like, yeah, I don't really like to talk about it. She disappeared. It's really difficult. Yeah, that's weird. She said the way he told the story was so believable that like that it was painful for him. And uh-huh. that, okay. yeah, shit. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want to press. Yes. Oh, no. Uh-huh. But then there were a couple of incidents. There was one where, like, Robert just blew up at her and screamed at her in front of a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. And she was stunned by it. Yeah. She kind of let it go. But then it happened a second time. And that second time she was like, we need to go to counseling. We need to get into counseling. If you want us to be a thing, we're going to go to counseling together Mm -hmm. because I can't handle this. And he agreed. And so they got into counseling and the therapist that they went and saw told Stephanie, you need to get out of this relationship. I believe your life is in danger. Wow. Can you believe that? No, I. Oh, gosh. That just fascinates me because I. My experience with therapy is the therapist kind of letting you go at your own pace yeah. <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. But in both of these instances, mm-hmm. for a therapist to feel like, okay, no, yeah. I've got to say something. Yeah. You know it has to be terrible. Mm-hmm. And so Stephanie did. She left him. Good. Yeah. And Robert just kind of started over again. In 1996, he married a woman and they moved to North Dakota where nobody knew him and started a family. Mm. They had a daughter and no one in North Dakota knew anything about Robert Bierenbaum. In fact, he was kind of a local hero there. So he's this doctor that does oh that flies God. to Mexico and does these great surgeries. And he also... Saved a boy's life after he was bitten by a tiger at the state what? fair. What? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what kind of fucking state fair is know. this? 
tell me more about that? That's all I know. <gasps> it's the extent of my knowledge on that my incident. God. <laughs> yeah. People loved him. Well, sure. He was good looking. He wore suits. He had this. He was like a great father. He had this child that he loved. He was super into dogs. Not in a creepy way. I realized as I said that it sounded weird. No. Okay. <laughs> What about that seemed creepy? I said he was super into dogs. I I guess, yeah, yeah that does sound. I shouldn't have phrased it that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's my fault. Horny for dogs is no. how you should have said it. So Robert's like living his best life. Lolita Loca, yeah. North Dakota. But back in New York, Detective Rosenzweig like was nearing retirement and he was like going back over his cases of his career and he could not stop thinking about Gail Katz. Yeah, because she like, had clearly been murdered and he knew who and, had murdered her. Yeah, and so he's like, we just have to – There, ha- this has to be a solvable case. Yeah. There's one suspect. We know who he is. Yeah. We have to just be able to prove it. And so he reached out to Gail's family and was like – can we exhume the torso now that DNA testing is available? Yeah. We can confirm it's Gale for sure. And then maybe the DA would be willing to look at this case again. Yeah. And so they agreed. They exhumed the torso. They did the DNA testing. And it wasn't Gale. <gasps> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God, that's upsetting. Yeah. Do they know who it was? They I don't, don't, do they? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Oh, no. Yeah. So then they're like, holy shit. So mm-hmm. now because of that, they then decided to just like re-examine the whole case, go back and re-interview everyone. And so they flew out to North Dakota. They talked to Robert Bierenbaum. They went to Vegas and talked to Stephanie Youngblood. They talked to a bunch of other women that he had dated over mm-hmm. the years. And... One interview in particular kind of struck them as like, oh, that's kind of new information and very alarming. So this was a a woman that he had dated when he was still in New York City. And she told them that like – so she had dated him pretty quickly after Gail had disappeared. And one night he got a phone call from the Port Authority who said something about like maybe someone had found Gail or there had been a sighting of Gail and that he should come down and – talk to them and he he was like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm in the middle of something I'll call you later and they got off the phone and he said to this woman that he was dating it's not Gail or I doubt it's Gail or I don't think it's Gail mm-hmm. something of that nature mm-hmm. and like this stuck with this woman as like kind of an alarming thing to say well, did he say it's not Gail or I don't think it's Gail? Because those are two very different things. I doubt it's Gail is I believe what he said. I mean, don't get me wrong. He for sure did yeah. this. But and also, though, so much is just how you look when you say something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And this so, was alarming enough to this woman that she, that remembered, she remembered it all it. these years yep. later. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So with these this reinvestigation, essentially, they re-put this case together and they take it to the DA again. They show them the flight logs. They show them they lay it out for them. And the DA is like, I think we have enough here. Mm-hmm. And so they took it before a grand jury. And in 2000, a grand jury indicted Robert Bierenbaum for the second degree murder of Gail Katz. Wow. She'd been missing for 15 years. The prosecution said that they knew that this would be the toughest case that they had ever tried. There was no forensics, mm-hmm. no eyewitness, no, no body. body. Yeah. It was entirely circumstantial. But when you put all of it together, it was so clear that there was only one possibility. Robert had murdered Gail. The prosecution believed that Robert had killed Gail in their apartment, that he'd dismembered her body, had spent probably hours doing it, put her in some kind of duffel bag. Mm-hmm. had carried that duffel bag out of the apartment building through a back entrance where he wouldn't have to go through a lobby or see a doorman. Yeah. Then had carried that duffel bag to that plane, put it on the plane, and pushed it out when he was flying over the Atlantic Ocean. So it was really important for the prosecution to be able to show a jury that this was physically possible. And so they put together like a reenactment video of this. Because they believed that Robert had acted alone. There was nobody yeah. else involved yeah. in this. And so when his trial began, the jury heard from four expert witnesses. So there was a medical examiner, a New York City police pilot, an aviation safety inspector, and like a flight instructor person. So they all testified that it was physically possible for Robert, this person with surgical experience mm-hmm. to have oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yes. Dismembered a body yeah. in a way that he could then put it in this duffel bag. Gail was small. She was five foot three. She weighed 110 pounds. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And then be able to carry that bag that they showed how he could have gone out through an unmonitored rear exit mm-hmm. of the apartment building, walked two blocks to the car where the car was parked. And then they played a video of a pilot loading two 50-pound bags of sand and a 10-pound bag of rice into a duffel bag and then reenacting all of this, walking the amount Mm -hmm. they would have to walk, loading it into a car, then loading it into a plane. They were not able to use the exact plane that Robert had rented that day because it had been wrecked. It had been crashed in the time since then, not by Robert, by someone else. But they flew a similar plane out. Once the plane was out over the ocean, the pilot was able to slow the plane, take both hands off the controls, reach over, open the passenger door of the plane, and push the duffel bag out and then close the door. Wow. It was completely possible. The prosecution told the jury about what they believed was the motive that Gail had had that affair and that she was confronting Robert, that she wanted a divorce, and that it was that day. Like, the plans were made. She had borrowed money from people to be able to move out, Mm -hmm. leave Robert. She told multiple people that it was going to happen that day. 
And then they presented the evidence of the flight logs that Robert had taken the flight, had rented the plane, and then had altered the logs to make it look as if he hadn't. And he hadn't told anybody yeah. that he'd taken that flight. The prosecution presented all of the evidence about their toxic relationship and all of the um, previous examples of violence that had taken place yeah. within that relationship. They even had people who said that Robert himself had referred to their arguments as severe and explosive. The prosecution put Gail's therapist on the stand. So remember, Robert had said – had told the police that Gail's therapist had said she was suicidal. Mm-hmm. So her therapist took the stand and said that she never told Robert that Yeah, and that she didn't believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. She didn't believe Gail was suicidal at all. Yeah. The defense said Robert was completely innocent. Gail had mental health issues. She had a drug problem. I don't know where that comes from. There was some report (laughs) that like Robert said he found cocaine in her underwear drawer after she went missing. And so he told people she went off with drug dealers. Uh Great. All right. Great. And that they said that she was unstable. They called a witness to the stand who said that he had seen Gail after she disappeared. She was in a bagel shop like a couple days after in New York City. But the prosecution was able to cross-examine him and the description of the person that witness saw in a bagel shop didn't match Gail's description <laughs> at <Whoa>. all. <laughs> How did this person even get involved? Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, And that was the defense's case. It was all uh, circumstantial. There's nothing here. And Gail's probably still alive. Well, they tried harder than my defense. (laughs) (laughs) The jury deliberated for five and a half hours before they found Robert guilty of second degree murder. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He had to have been stunned by that. So Gail's sister said she was stunned by it. Yeah. She said when they read the verdict, she grabbed her brother's hand because she could not believe they said guilty. Yeah. I think they just hadn't like allowed themselves at this point. No, you wouldn't. I mean, it's so obvious. And yet Mm -hmm. for 15 years, he got away with it. He was like living his best life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually surprised they got a guilty verdict because it's not a strong case. No. I mean, it's easy to look at it and say, oh, Uh, yeah, that's for sure what happened. Right. But as far as, like, a legal case, Mm -hmm. it's not a lot. Yeah. Robert filed multiple appeals following Mm -hmm. his conviction. He first claimed that the trial court had erred in allowing in some evidence about the previous toxicity of their relationship, Mm. that that shouldn't have been allowed in. That didn't work out for him. And so then he appealed based on ineffective counsel. And that didn't work out for him. So then he appealed on the basis that too much time had passed between when Gail disappeared and when he was charged with her murder. Mm -hmm. And that also did not work out for him. All of those appeals were denied. Yeah. In 2020, after serving 20 years of his sentence, Mm -hmm. Robert had his first parole hearing. And at that parole hearing, he confessed. (gasps) To murdering Gail. No way. Yep. Holy shit, what did he say? He said that they had gotten into an argument. Oh, and my that God. Gail was yelling at him, and he just wanted her to stop, and so 
He attacked her. Holy shit. He strangled her. And then he did exactly what the prosecution had theorized he did. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. The parole board asked him why he killed Gail. And he said that he was immature at the time and didn't understand how to deal with his anger. Wow. Mm -hmm. I am stunned. Stunned. The investigators and the prosecutors and Gail's family were all shocked no by this kidding. confession. They all knew that this is what well, yeah, had to have happened. Knew, but, but never in a million years did they think they'd get him to confirm it. Right. Yeah. He was denied parole at that parole uh-huh. hearing. And so I read that he was up for parole again in 2021. I did not hear any outcome of that. So I assume he's still in prison. Um, to this day, Gail's body has never been found. Mm-hmm. The nonprofit organization Pace Women's Justice Center um, was rebranded as Gail's House in honor of Gail Katz. Its mission is to bring greater awareness to domestic violence issues and provide resources for women. <laughs> what about the women? <laughs> for <though>? women, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine Katz said she allowed them to use her sister's name as a way to honor her memory. My sister's body has never been found. Gail doesn't rest anywhere. Gail's house gave my sister a resting place. Hmm. I feel my sister's spirit is here, warning others, inspiring others. Wow. And that's the story of a disappearance. Okay. What do you make of that parole hearing, of that admission? I don't fucking know. I think he had to think that was his best chance at getting parole, right? (laughs) it's... It's funny because that's kind of what I came to also because my initial thought is like, oh, my gosh, has he done a ton of work on himself? Yeah, of course you'd hope that's what it is. I mean, yeah, you absolutely would. But it's just so rare for someone to – Yeah. I I mean, yeah, my – I don't know. He probably – it's probably exactly what you think it is. Yeah. He thought, (laughs) you know what will surprise him? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad they finally got him, though. Yeah. Absolutely. So I now I can't remember. Had he, he had remarried, right? He had remarried and what he had did a child. The new, what did the new wife I don't know. I didn't find any statements from her or anything. Ooh, that would be wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. She may have really dodged something there. Yeah, no kidding. Or she may not see it that way and think that, you know, yeah. it's a terrible thing. Oh, who you knows? never know. You know. <laughs> Woo, you know what we should do now? Take some questions from our Discord. That's right. To get in our Discord, all you have to do is join our Patreon at the $5 level or higher. Join our Patreon, won't you? Yeah, do it. Do it. No nuts. Do it. Ooh, Busted Zinger wants to know, I recently adopted a dog from an animal shelter and have been trying to take her on regular walks. I was curious, Kristen, what are your absolute necessities when walking your puppers? As a bonus, here's a pic of my new dog, Nutter Butter. Oh, my gosh. Nutter Butter is adorable. so cute. Oh, my gosh. Okay, here's the thing, Busted Zinger. (sighs) Dog walking, it's not time for glamour. That's what I always (laughs) say. So I I get my visor on. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have a belt that I wear that has like a pouch attached to it. It's made specifically for dog uh-huh. walking. In it, I keep some treats for the dogs. I keep the poop bags. I also keep my cell phone in there. And then, you know, I put in my little earbuds and I listen to podcasts. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you look super cute. No one has ever stopped me and said that. <laughs> no, those are the essentials. Do you have essentials for walking all over? No, you know, Oliver just likes a real quick walk. He doesn't – he's not into No belt the, needed? Yeah. No, we just have a real basic leash and he likes to get his business done hmm. and then move it on back into the air-conditioned home. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Diva dog. I couldn't disagree with this more. I'm sorry. Yes, but is it illegal? Says popcorn toppings. Do you go sweet, salty, savory, or a mix? I like to do a bit of a buttery, salty popcorn and M&Ms. However, they cannot be in the same container. The M&Ms melt. I like popcorn, and then while it's still hot, you sprinkle the M&Ms over it so they do get melty, and then you put it all in, and it's delicious. Sounds like a mess. Do you eat it with a spoon? No, because they only get melty inside. They've got that convenient candy-coated shell to keep it from getting everywhere. What is your experience in life? The candy-coated shell, they say that it doesn't melt. But, like, if you've ever had some M&Ms in the palm of your hand, you know that the dye gets onto your hand, your yeah, sweaty so palm. You just, it's, it's, you got to do it in a swift motion. So you get yourself a little a little handful of mm-hmm. popcorn with M&M's in it, and you just toss it all back. See, I think you're moving more quickly than the average bear. <laughs> because I I am with this person. Like, it gets too melty. It's a mess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you got to maintain the integrity of the M&M, No, I it say. works out perfect. I like it because it gets all melty. I wish you weren't what so you, wrong. What do you, you like hot sauce on your popcorn. I like basically anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad about butter and and salt and yeah. M&M's on the side. Yeah. Oh. I also wouldn't be upset about them being mixed in, but I yeah. would say this is messy and I'd eat it anyway. <laughs> um, but no, I am a hot sauce yeah, gal. Yeah, you've done that since we were young children. Has it scarred you for life? It was always the weirdest thing to me because you wouldn't put it on the popcorn. You would create like a little, you'd have it like so that you could dip a Oh, now I go balls out. Now I do. Oh, okay. (laughs) I've evolved, Brandy, okay? (laughs) Jill wants to know, are there any words or phrases other than DP that you've had to teach your parents? I just had to prove to my dad that snuggle is a real word. Jill, that's a very um, blessed experience. (laughs) Just have to explain the word snuggle. Um, I've had to explain cock block uh-huh. to my mother when she used it out of context. I also had to use the word sausage fest. I had to explain that one to her when she used it out of context. What about you? Have you had to do? Uh, I mean, probably, but none that stick in my memory like the ones you've had to do with your parents. <laughs> No, my favorite thing was not with my parents, but with one of my lovely clients, Miss Doreen, who is in her seventies oh, uh-huh. and enjoys the podcast. And she asked me what DP meant. <laughs> <laughs> I 
was like, Doreen, are you sure you want to know? And she's like, yes, I want to know. And so I told her. And she said, oh, so just like a Tuesday night. <laughs> <laughs> Just try to shock Doreen. You can't do it. You can't do it. (gasps) Esther Pants says, I left a really toxic work environment and a coworker that did not like or respect me. I moved on to my new role and he moved to Florida. He's tried to contact me recently, I assume because he's moving back and needs help finding a new employer. I have no interest in reconnecting. How would you respond? I fucking wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. You're under no obligation. Absolutely. Bye. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, that's an easy one. You ever not responded? You ever cold-shouldered <laughs> yes. somebody? Ooh, okay. Doppenditz asked Kristen, would you let Brandy do the hair roulette challenge? What's the hair okay, roulette so challenge? You haven't seen this on no. TikTok? Okay. So it's where, you know, someone comes into a hairstylist that they obviously really trust. Yeah. And the hairstylist stands behind them and they hold up two options for different things. So, like, it starts with, like, mm-hmm. okay, do you want to do a bold change or, you know, not? And they choose yeah. that. And they do, like, three different cha- choices, like, you want to chop it off or keep right. it, you know, blah, 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 blah. Would you do that? Oh, yeah. I know you would. Yeah, of course You'd I would. You'd absolutely do it. <laughs> would you do it, though? I would hate it! I know you would. <laughs> See, that's the funny thing is people think it would be tough no, for me. You no, you would be like, absolutely, and I would be like, oh, what if she doesn't like it? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm kind of... Well, you know how I am. Yes. It's like if I'm around someone and they're a professional at yeah. it and I've been around them enough to know like, yeah, this is a professional who knows their shit. Yes. Yeah, I'll you take would a be chance. Way more into it than I would. Oh, I would absolutely. Be a I'd be excited. Yes. And even if I didn't like it, I'd be like, it's fine. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Would you ever allow someone to do that to you? No. Wow, <laughs> you didn't even think about it. Yeah, no. Absolutely not. Okay, who is the best hairstylist in the world, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. I don't know. There's lots of really great hairstylists. Right. But, I mean, is is there someone who, like, like someone who, like, you couldn't even get an appointment with? In- okay, when I was a brand new stylist, I loved Nick Arojo. Like, he, I got to see him do a platform performance. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, oh, was obsessed with him. Okay. Nick Arojo. He's, no? Not a chance. Not a chance? Absolutely not. What the? Brandy. No. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Wow. What if you chopped my hair off? Well, it would grow back. (laughs) Not a chance. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) Not the least bit interested in doing it. I can tell. (laughs) I can tell. Wow. (laughs) G Sizzle eighty nine says, Brandy, what has been your favorite and least favorite parts of wedding planning? I'm also planning my wedding, and it's been simultaneously heaven and hell. I will tell you that I was so overwhelmed by wedding planning initially that I didn't like it at all. Mm-hmm. I am just now to the point where I am super fucking excited for the wedding yeah. because most of the planning is done now. That makes sense to yeah. me. Yeah, you've made all the hard decisions, yes. and now it's the fun part. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I cannot wait for the wedding. So what's been your most favorite part? Hmm. I mean, picking the venue was my favorite part. Okay. Yeah. Why? Well, what we ended up with was not what I thought we would do at all. So. Yeah. Yeah. You thought Denny's. Right. In that back room, mm-hmm. they've got yeah, we're just going to book the back room of Denny's. Mops. Yeah, and just uh, lumberjacks all around. 
That's a meal there. Oh, okay. I was like, <laughs> I was like just hot dudes surrounding you? I should have said grand slams all around. Like, that's the meal everyone knows. Right. You really went for, like, the less popular option. I don't option. know why that's the one that, like, came to mind immediately. <laughs> what comes with a lumberjack? I don't know. I think it's, like, all the stuff. You get, like, yeah, pancakes, pancakes and eggs mm-hmm. and ham and bacon and sausage. Yeah. What gets you more food, a Grand Slam or a Lumberjack? A Lumberjack. I think it's like their biggest breakfast. Oh, you know, yeah, from Lumberjack! <laughs> well, I gotcha. I understand the big manly stuff. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, Richard N. Balls asks, did Noodles and Company ever bring back the spicy chicken Caesar wrap? No, they fucking didn't. <laughs> Which is weird. Because we... <laughs> Talked about that on our podcast that had 10 listeners. 10 listeners. <laughs> it's like they don't care. <laughs> Have you been there lately? No. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm done with no it. No one has. Dead to me. <laughs> dead to me. Because literally six years ago, they changed their menu. Yes. They know what they did. Yeah. Blaze Slays wants to know, if you could make any pet peeve of yours illegal, what would it be? Oh, well, I mean, I think my pet, my biggest pet peeves are like bad driving and that's already illegal. Yeah, so no, you can't like I double illegal. Fucking, I have road rage when I drive because I can't stand people who don't follow the rules of the road. <laughs> oh, what? You think you're fucking special and don't need to use your turn signal? You know, the turn signal is not for you. It's for everybody else around you, asshole. <laughs> Ma'am, are you aware you're not in a car right now? <laughs> It is moments like these that I'm like, Norman and Brandy are the same person. Because you're not like hot-tempered people in general, but man. Put us behind the wheel of a car. And have someone act a fool and wow. Oh, everyone will hear about it. Oh, my God. I think I would make gum illegal. Oh, yeah. You hate gum. It's a gross thing. Yeah, I think I would make it illegal, and instead we have more mints yeah, in the world. Yeah, you're just outlawing gum and replacing it with mints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I See Fat Legs asks, do particularly terrible cases ever leave you depressed and drained after recording an episode? Oh, fuck yeah. Al- absolutely. All the time. And absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> If so, do you sit with your emotions, journal them out, or do something to distract you? Yes, they affect both of us a mm-hmm. lot because we have to read so much about them to do these episodes. And then, yeah, you have to tell it. And sometimes it's really terrible. So I always like Wednesday nights for me, I always watch like light television to, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, we're both sensitive people with so much to give. <laughs> <laughs> No, we are sensitive yeah, we people. Are. So, yes. so we react. Absolutely. Nancy Drew wants to know, what's your worst habit? I don't have one. What's yours? Um, I don't do anything but amazing things oh, all the okay. time. <laughs> <laughs> I have bad habits. Um, I chew on my fingernails. I don't really bite my fingernails, but I chew on my fingernails. Hmm. I used to bite my fingernails. <laughs> It's like an evolution of biting my fingernails. What? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So I just like 
yeah. run my teeth around my fingernails instead of actually biting them. You know what? You're following the letter of the law, but not the <laughs> spirit of the law. And don't think that I don't notice. <laughs> Missy. What, what's your bad habit? Oh, my God. I've got so many. <laughs> I know what your bad habit is. What is it? You eat, like, right before we're going to go. <laughs> like, you just can't wait the 30 minutes. I can't. I can't. Everyone, we recorded Monday night. And I knew Brandy was coming over in, like, legit half an hour. And we were going to go to dinner. Yeah. And I ate a whole chicken breast and <laughs> two handfuls of cashews. Which I know is weird. <laughs> And, like, if that was the first time she had done that, that would not be a bad habit. No, she does it all the time. She's like, I'm just not that hungry. <laughs> because I ate 13 pickles and also a cheese stick. And um, yeah, it's always something yes, weird. It is always it's never weird. like I had this great option that I couldn't pass up. Right. No, I don't know. Sometimes I get hungry. and Yeah, I get know, that. Eat when you're hungry. Yeah, but yeah. you don't. Like, you would wait. No, I will wait until it's until we're going to go have the meal. Yeah, you would yeah. wait 500 hours. I would. And you would wait 500 <laughs> more. Man, I've worked in a lot of <laughs> songs into this. <laughs> hmm. 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 Judge Jurst Redurst wants to know, with the new change in the Supreme Court decisions, how do you feel about getting more judges on the Supreme Court? I don't know that more judges would solve that problem. I don't either. I'm not opposed to more judges. I just don't know that that solves anything. (laughs) It's funny. My solutions are all like things that could never happen. (laughs) It's like, well, I kind of feel like if it's going to be basically a lifetime appointment, mm-hmm. then maybe that should be something we all vote, vote on. on. Yeah, But then at the same time, I'm like, we'll take the money out of it. Yeah, But yeah, I think we, we're in this position now where we've got some extremists who yeah. aren't representing what the people want yes. or what's good for the majority of people. Correct. And so I wonder what we do with that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but it's definitely something that needs to be examined. Well, that is a way of saying words and saying nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) I am not smart enough to know what the solution to that is, but I'm smart enough to recognize there's a problem with the way it's currently operating. Yeah. Ugh. Because, yeah, the decisions that are being handed down at this point do not match the majority of what people want. And that's not to say that... We should always go with what the majority no. of people want. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about some really important Supreme Court decisions that we all admire. It's like, wow, that was really moving us forward mm-hmm. when the majority of Americans probably would have been against it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But now we're in this weird position where they're mm-hmm. making a decision about you, buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you have religious cult members on the Supreme Court. Religious cult members? Yeah. Amy Coney Barrett? You know anything about her religious affiliations? No, I know. She's, I know she's a nut. But I mean, 
it'd be great if we just had one nut, but we've got <laughs> a whole bunch of them. <laughs> oh, boy. You probably cut it off there. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some Supreme Court inductions. But how do you get inducted into the Supreme Court? All you have to do is join our Be a Patreon. religious nut. No. And <laughs> want to take not. people's rights away. <laughs> and that's all we're looking for. $7 level or higher. <laughs> Bonus points if you've sexually harassed someone no. horribly. <laughs> No. We won't question you. Ooh. We will question the accuser. Oh, oh sorry. Is this gracious. too real? <laughs> it is. It's too real. <laughs> We're continuing to read your names and your favorite cookies. Cookies. Stacy Rice. Snickerdoodle. Alyssa Taylor. Peanut butter blossoms with mini M&Ms. Oh, shit. Okay. Beth Kendall. Chocolate chip ice cream sandwich. Does that count? I don't know. Mm. I guess I'll allow it. Chelsea Gulbrinson. Oatmeal chocolate chip. Elisa Pignoli. Pignoli? No, no that's, the, that's the... Oh, cookie. for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Elisa is her name. <laughs> Thank you. Pignoli <laughs> is her favorite cookie. <laughs> and reading words is your game. <laughs> <laughs> My sincerest apologies, Elisa. <laughs> Nicole C. Packaged sugar cookies with holiday designs. No, Nicole. <laughs> Kristen hates those. I'm sorry, we can't allow you to have those anymore, Nicole. <laughs> Alex Bracken. White chip macadamia nut. Wait, don't you don't you say white chocolate, chocolate? chip? Mac- yeah, Did white. you not have time, Alex? White chocolate. We gotta. <laughs> Kylie Wise. Lemon sugar cookies with lemon frosting. Okay. Dana. Sugar cookies. Stephanie Susco. Undercooked sugar cookies. Oh, Stephanie just, just stole Dana's cookies. Bam. Yep. Kicking it up a notch. No, I'm saying like she stole them out of the oven. Oh! Then Dana comes around oh, on cookies. Oh, They're okay. all eaten by oh, Steph. I got it now. All right. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty sophisticated scenario. Page R. Ginger molasses cookies. Victoria Sainsbury. Chocolate chip. Jessica Nobilski. My mom's homemade snickerdoodles. Melissa Henderson. Thin mints. Andrea. Chocolate chip. Welcome to the Supreme Court! Hey, why don't you play poker in the jungle? Too many cheetahs? Stupid. (laughs) And yet you laughed. (laughs) Oh, boy. You even supplied the punchline and you laughed. Anyway, thank you, everyone, for all of your support. We Mm -hmm. appreciate it Mm -hmm. so much. If you're looking for other ways to support us, please find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. And be sure to – what? Don't I usually say that? Oh, I'm sorry. Then you say when we'll be experts on two old new topics.
Podcast adjourned. adjourned. Was that the first fucking time we've done it? <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, it's our second podcast in just a few days, and maybe I, the wheels are falling off. All right, uh, now uh, note for a, a battle process. <laughs> I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. I got my info from the article The Case of Adolf Kors by Mara Bovson for the New York Daily News, as well as the article On the Run from One Murder, He Accidentally Committed Another and Joined the FBI's Most Wanted List by Cheryl E.D. for Gizmodo. That would give it all away. Well, and do they not have a word count on their headlines? My God. Also, How an Escaped Convict Terrorized the Kors Beer Dynasty by Seth Ferranti for Vice. Also, Forensic Files, their episode Bitter Brew, and reporting in newspapers.com and the Denver Post. I got my info from an episode of 2020 that I read and did not watch. Chillingcrimes.com, articles for heavy.com and and oxygen.com, and the court record. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors? (laughs) (laughs) Yes! Oh, this is your first time doing this? Any errors? Are of course ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. I can't believe you messed that up. (laughs) 